Welcome to the Political Economy Forum's podcast, Neither Free Nor Fair, Election Security and the Fate of Democracy in the 21st Century. I'm James Long, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Washington and co-founder of the Political Economy Forum. In today's episode, we will ask the question, should we ever vote in person again? This echoes the title of an op-ed published in the New York Times in May, co-authored by two of today's guests, Charlotte Hill and Jake Grumbach. I'm really excited to have Charlotte and Jake on today. And originally, they were going to discuss their research on the security of mail-in ballots, voter mobilization and in-person voting, same-day registration, and other real and imaginary threats to election security in the U.S. But mail-in voting has gained heightened importance in the last 24 hours with the announcement that the president and the first lady have tested positive for the coronavirus. While we, while we originally scheduled this episode to focus on Charlotte and Jake's research, we have decided to synthesize those insights with how the president's diagnosis may or may not affect turnout in this election. Charlotte Hill is a doctoral candidate in public policy at the University of California, Berkeley. She studies voter mobilization and turnout, as well as important structural barriers to political participation in the US. Charlotte also sits on the national boards of Fair Vote, a leading election reform organization, and Represent Us, a nationwide bipartisan anti-corruption campaign. And she has previously served on the San Francisco Elections Commission. Hello, Charlotte, how are you? Hi, doing well, how are you? Good, thanks for being here. And we also have Jake Grumbach, an assistant professor of political science at the University of Washington and faculty affiliate of the Political Economy Forum. Jake studies American political economy and public policy, including recent research focused on labor unions, election law, and campaign finance. Hi, Jake. Hey, thanks for having me, James. Great, so first we wanna address the recent news, the big elephant in the room uh, on the president's diagnosis. Um, so there's a lot we still don't know, and the story is of course unfolding, but suffice it to say the president's diagnosis and how it affects his campaign and campaign staff is, is pretty unknown at this point. But Charlotte and Jake, you've studied closely voter mobilization, and so I wonder if you care to comment on how the president's diagnosis may shift, if at all, how voters are now thinking about whether to turn out and if so, by voting in person or by mail, and whether this diagnosis could at all shift any support toward or away from the president. So let's start with Jake. Jake, what do you think? So first, we are cursed to live in interesting times, as the old adage goes. And cursed or blessed? Yeah, both. <laughs> um, it is quite a time. And uh, throughout the coronavirus pandemic, sort of politics and electoral politics has changed at a sort of day-to-day -day pace um, with tremendous uncertainty. Uh, so I think this is going to be the same when we think about the effect of, uh, you know, uh, Donald and Melania Trump's uh, positive test for uh, COVID-19. So on the one hand, uh, we might think rational actors uh, would consider coronavirus to be a more serious issue now that the president has been diagnosed positive. On the other hand, if the president comes back in a few days and says he barely had any symptoms and this was all very minor and uh, the measures around masks and lockdowns were overboard given the you know lack of severity of symptoms, then we could actually see that sort of opposite effect where his base is emboldened. So I think there's tremendous uncertainty and we'll learn in the coming days. What I don't think we're going to see is this 
COVID diagnosis having much of an effect on Democratic voters' turnout. Democrats, by and large, have been taking the COVID threat pretty seriously and factoring it into their voting plans already. Uh, And I also just don't see Democratic sentiment toward the president himself changing much in light of this diagnosis. So I think Jake is right. To the extent that we do see movement in turnout and in method of voting, we're we're probably going to see that on the, the Republican side. Yeah, that just, I would just double down on Charlotte's point about the tremendous stability of Trump's approval rating uh, throughout this entire year plus of really uh, massive sort of social problems hitting the U.S. from COVID-19 to West Coast wildfires and climate apocalypse to an deep economic recession, if not depression, remarkable stability in that case. So I think we shall see how the how election administration runs through this tumultuous time. But I think people's vote choice has been remained pretty stable. But but Charlotte, I want to press you on this point um, on the Republican side, which is that, you know, we, we can probably safely assume at this point that the, the president contracted coronavirus because he wasn't taking the basic um, measures, CDC guidelines with masks and social distancing and all the rest of it. And and that's sort of uh, a weaponized and politicized thing in and of itself right now in the U.S., the sort of not wearing a mask as a political statement. So now that the leader of this party has gotten infected by ignoring the advice of public health experts, most likely, does that at all shift the sentiment of Republican voters? Does it shift their propensity to want to vote by mail? Or does it have a rally effect? Do, do some independents maybe in the middle or people who are on the fence about whether to turn out, do they rally to Trump to support him? I know it's not a fun answer to hear because people are desperate for a greater sense of certainty, but I really do think it depends. And it, it depends on, uh, as, as Jake was saying, what we see play out in the next few days in terms of Trump's condition. I think if people see him appear to recover quite quickly, that paints a different picture of COVID and the risks of contracting it uh, than if you know we see him having to be admitted in a hospital or be unable to carry out his duties despite you know claiming that he is going to carry them out as usual. So I really do think it depends. If the president does come down with a pretty bad case and that's visible to the public, I think that's the circumstance in which we might see more conservative Republican voters decide to do that last minute request of their mail-in ballot and cast a vote that way. But we have to remember, we've had half a year now of pretty aggressive anti-vote-by-mail rhetoric coming out of the White House and out of senior ranks in the Republican Party. So I do think that groundwork has been laid and that rhetoric is not going to disappear from people's minds and people's decision-making calculus at the drop of a hat. So there is some chance that we're not going to see much movement among Republican voters because at this point they've kind of made up their minds that the right way to vote is in person. Again, it kind of all depends on what we see play out in the next few days. Do you think Trump might actually change his tune on mail-in voting because it would help him? Or do you think he'll double down on in-person but then be a little bit more clear about masks, social distancing? Trump has pursued a rhetorical strategy of separating the idea of absentee voting from vote by mail, which substantively is the same thing. They involve getting a mail-in ballot and turning it in, sending it back, or putting it in a Dropbox or bringing it to a polling place, depending on uh, your state. 
Uh, and he's tried to say that his and his sort of uh, White House staff and things, their absentee voting is somehow different, whereas vote by mail is a threat to uh, the electoral process and is more susceptible to fraud and these sorts of things. So that rhetorical strategy will continue clearly going forward. And thinking about how robust and stable the Republican base has been throughout this process, think back, Herman Cain just died from coronavirus. Like he was, he's relatively central to the Republican Party and to elite Trump support. And he died from coronavirus during the time period of having these quite risky rallies throughout this past summer. So the idea that these things will change because of some facts on the ground changing is just in this deeply polarized era where the elite party positions are what shape the base. I just don't see much change happening regardless of how things change. The last yeah. thing I'll note is that is that we're already at the beginning of October. Folks don't have that much time left to request their absentee ballot, you know, their, their mail and ballot, have it, re- uh, receive it in time to fill it out and return it and make sure that it will be postmarked and, and counted for the election. So you have senior strategists on either side of the party aisle that are looking at this timing and starting to shift away from a vote by mail strategy and in the direction of encouraging people to get out and vote early in person. You're seeing that in conversations on the left and the right already. So it's not evident to me that you'll see Republican Party strategists thinking now is the time to push voters to request that mail-in ballot. We're, We're really running out of time on that front. The whole point of, of sort of seeding doubt, sowing doubt in terms of male voting that Trump and the Republican coalition have been pursuing is to delegitimize voting in general and what looks like is going to be disproportionately Democratic-leaning voters voting by mail. And also the fact that bluer areas, bluer states tend to have been more enthusiastic about uh, switching to vote by mail this year. For all of those reasons, he Trump has a gets clear value out of criticizing vote by mail. So I don't think the idea that now he should really encourage his base to turn out by mail, given now that he's contracted coronavirus, I don't think that benefit outweighs the benefit he gets from seeding doubt in the entire process and being able to eventually say around November, if he loses, that the election was stolen. Well, so Jake, that's a great segue to the discussion of you, your and, and Charlotte's research, which is the original purpose of this uh, episode, but it, it, se- it segues nicely with a broader topic about vote, vote by mail and, and how COVID might affect that. Um, so we originally invited you on to discuss your research, which is the subject of a, a New York Times op-ed about uh, whether or not we should vote in person ever again. And it, it draws from a working paper, the two of you and Adam Bonica and Hakeem Jefferson. Um, we'll, we'll link to both of those on the website. And one of the things I really like that I'd like you guys to focus on is first, the paper and the op-ed have a, have a narrow focus in a sense. It's really about vote by mail in Colorado. But I think what would be really great for listeners is to kind of understand the specifics of, about exactly how vote by mail worked and has worked in Colorado, what your data and your study shows from Colorado, and then we can kind of move to kind of broader issues around it. But could you say, maybe we'll start with Charlotte, could you say a little bit more about the study itself? What were you guys investigating with Vote by Mail in Colorado? What data did you have and how did you uh, design your study? Right. The goal of our study was to understand how Colorado's choice to implement 
universal mail voting in the in 2014 affected voter turnout in the state. And I think it's important to define our terms quickly. Universal mail voting, or, or we sometimes call it all mail voting, looks a, a certain way in Colorado. They mail ballots to every registered eligible voter in the state. Those folks can then fill out their ballots at home and return them via mail, or they can drop them off in a secure ballot drop box or at a professionally staffed voting center. This model is commonly referred to by advocates as vote at home, because you're not necessarily returning your ballot by mail, you're getting your ballot in the mail, you're filling it out at home, and then you're returning it in whichever way is most convenient to you. That's the system we were looking at, and it's considered kind of the gold standard or, or best in class by a lot of people who are trying to make voting easier. So we wanted to know how this mail voting system affected turnout for everyone overall. And then we also wanted to look at how it affected turnout for specific groups of people in particular, folks who are less likely to vote under more traditional voting rules where you have to vote in person at a polling place. These are you know, young people, people of color, folks with less formal education, less household wealth. So when Colorado switched to this mail voting system, did those people's voting rates increase? Our analytical approach was pretty straightforward. Uh, we looked at how the turnout of individual Colorado residents changed over time. So from the years before mail voting to the years after the implementation of mail voting. And then we compared that difference in turnout to how individual turnout changed in a set of control states that didn't have universal mail voting. So for all the academics listening, it's a pretty standard individual level difference in differences design. Our control states were in the same region as Colorado, similar demographics, similar voting policies in place um, before Colorado made the switch and separated itself from the pack. And the final thing I'll mention is, is just on the data front, our analysis was using data from the national L2 voter file. It has complete voting records for all registered voters and then a bunch of individual level characteristics that you can use uh, to control for for other factors that might affect someone's turnout. Just so the listeners are clear, so this is this is a file that the government, I mean basically election administrators keep that has the has the individual who is registered to vote, things about that individual socio-demographic profile, and then actually whether they cast a ballot that was registered in the election. What I think a lot of people uh, who don't study elections don't realize is that there's no formal you know, government compiled national voter database out there. Almost every other advanced democracy in the world does have a national voter file. But in the US, we have 50 states that each have their own voter files. And then you have a couple commercial firms out there that compile all that data uh, for researchers to use. So uh, this is this is one of those firms called L2. But yeah, it's basically they're, they're looking at what states report in terms of who actually turned out to vote and uh, states collect other voter uh, other info about voters from their from their voter registration forms. So that information gets in there and then they look at commercial data sources. Uh, so from other companies that are collecting information about individuals and they append that information to the voter file uh, so that you can kind of get a, a more holistic picture of who it is that's voting in a given election. Great. So, so Jake, what were the results of the study kind of overall in terms of the effects of the change in policy in Colorado on turnout, as well as for the specific individual groups that you and Charlotte and your co-authors looked at? So the first takeaway is we were really surprised by the results. First is that they're overall 
the increase in turnout in Colorado, we estimate to be almost nine percentage points, which is if you know anything about trying to increase voter turnout, either as a sort of activist or somebody who's volunteered for a campaign or something like that, it's really hard to get people to vote. So this reform, we think, was extremely effective in doing so overall. Um, that's the first thing. The second is that contrary to conventional wisdom, we found that this all-male voting reform increased turnout most among younger people, so especially in the millennial generation. It improved turnout across every age category, but the old conventional wisdom was that older people who own homes, who might like getting their ballot at home and don't really like the fanfare of election day, the way young people you know, might be mobilized by late stage social media and traditional TV media and sort of the, the hype around Sean Puffy Combs doing rock the vote and things like that. But actually we found that they increase in turnout was up to about 15 percentage points among young people, which was massive. And then similarly, contra conventional wisdom, we saw that turnout increased most among people with blue collars uh, types of occupations and for people with lower levels of education. And finally, uh, most for people of color, especially African-Americans, And that was uh, initially sort of an open question whether especially Latino and Asian Americans would appreciate vote by mail. And it turned out that they do some uh, slightly more than other racial and ethnic groups. Um, So overall, all male voting, especially in the Colorado form of it, which we'll talk about a bit later, is, is seems to have a pretty massive turnout effect. And across all demographic groups, it makes voting more convenient and more people turn out to vote. And this is especially true among these groups, these demographic groups that have historically faced greater barriers to voting. So young people move much more, have lower incomes, have not been habituated to the voting process. Things like that are more transient. People of color, especially African-Americans through Jim Crow laws have been disenfranchised for tremendous amounts of time. And then lower education and socioeconomic status individuals, of course, face greater barriers around getting time off from work, around getting to and from a polling place. So uh, vote by mail may be especially important in that way as well. So let me ask two follow-up questions then. Did turnout go down or just really hold steady for any, any group? And then what was the difference in the increase or decrease in turnout among Democrats, Republicans, and independents? We saw no decrease among any coherent demographic group. So it really across the board, no matter what type of person you are, vote by mail, especially in the like effectively done Colorado reform, seems to improve turnout. And then the other thing we found is in this voter file, we have individuals likely sort of probabilistic registration status, whether they would register as a Democrat, Republican, or independent. And we found that it improved turnout most among independents and not, and not differently between Democrats and Republicans. So this follows a couple other papers that have shown that in aggregate election returns rather than individual voter registration, because we don't observe vote choice, right? That's still secret in these, you know, your vote choice is always secret, but in state voter databases, it's going to say whether you turned out or not. We found similar increases among registered Democrats and Republicans, which is consistent with these other papers that show in terms of aggregate election results that vote by mail does not seem to benefit one party over the other. Well, that's really interesting because I think in this moment right now, a, a, a lot of people are, are making the opposite argument, which is that 
you know, I'm thinking of Rick Wilson of the of the Daily Beast and the Abnormal podcast talking about how he had, you know, vote by mail in Florida, I believe he argues, was really pushed by the Republican Party. Like they had built this machinery around sort of pushing vote by mail. And there's been a lot of discussion, particularly across the different states about, okay, if there were universal vote by mail in this election, who would it actually benefit? I'm wondering, one of the things that you guys really find as a success in Colorado, as I understood the paper, is that the impetus for this policy change didn't actually come from the parties. It didn't really come from political interest in terms of increasing get out the vote. But as I understood it, it actually came from policymakers themselves at the state level. So could you say a little bit more about how that process and policymaking actually played out and why that might be different than the parties pursuing this in, in other states? Yeah, I can speak to this. Uh, There was a really great report that came out after uh, mail voting was implemented at the statewide level in Colorado that was trying to figure out, you know, how, how did this work? How did this get pulled off? And really, it comes down to election officials throughout the state, not only being on board with this policy change, but actually doing the bulk of the law writing themselves so that they had a policy that that made sense, that could be implemented well, and that wouldn't, you know, not only would would not increase the kind of legwork for election officials, but would ultimately make things easier for the folks who are running elections in the state. I think it was really telling that the day before the bill was introduced, the Colorado County Clerks Association, which is 65% Republican, or at least was at at the time, voted to support the the bill. There's really no evidence that this was a a big partisan fight in the state, at least uh, among election officials. And at the end of the day, I think uh, across the country, policymakers are often deferential to the election officials who are going to be in charge of implementing these policy changes. They really look to election officials as the as the experts. So, um, so yeah, I think Colorado did things really smartly there by making sure that election officials were front and center uh, in making this policy change happen. And Charlie, you've served as an election official in the state of California. I mean, for listeners, they may not know that sort of at the bureaucratic level of administering an election, these are nonpartisan positions. These are non, I mean, people obviously have their own partisan leanings, but these are basically the equivalent of um, a bureaucratic agency pressing for something. Is that a good way to characterize it? It's not a deeply politicized or it, it shouldn't depends. Be. I should say it depends on, on the state and on the jurisdiction. I think by and large, most election officials, uh, administrators, I should say, uh, across the country are nonpartisan bureaucrats who, who are, uh, in the best sense of the word, who are uh, running the bureaucracy of elections, which can be really complicated and just getting their hands dirty with the, the day-to-day work of pulling elections off. When you start looking at the state level, that's where you start seeing some secretaries of state who are appointed by partisan politicians at times or who run in partisan elections. And that really varies from state to state. And you can start running into issues like what we saw in the 2018 Georgia gubernatorial race where you had the a partisan secretary of state who was simultaneously overseeing the election and running for for governor in the state. So there are times where, where you can see partisan uh, interests play into election administration, and that's really problematic, and we, we shouldn't run elections that way. But when it comes to local election administrators, uh, who, again, are running the nuts and bolts of elections, I think that's fair to say that the vast majority of them are nonpartisan and just, just trying to make elections go off without a hitch. 
Jake, I have a question, which is, you don't spend a lot of time in this in the paper, but I wonder if you and your co-authors kind of have a sense of this, um, even if anecdotally, which is what about the policy change is kind of mattering for John Q. Colorado in his or her decision now to vote, whereas previously they weren't? So is it, is it kind of like what you were saying before, where a young person is fairly disengaged, but they've registered, okay, they get sent a ballot, and now, you know, Puff Daddy has a, a commercial and they decide to vote. And so they send it in. So they're sort of exposed to new information. Is it parties doing GOTV on top of the policy change to target these groups? Is it um, other kinds of mobilization? Or is it really just these groups didn't have the time and resources and wherewithal previously, and now it's just simple? And so they would have done it before had it been as simple, and now they just do it because it is, in fact, simple. I'd say the latter. So that is a traditional cost of voting argument. So there are some social benefits. You're feeling that you did your civic duty, some social pressure uh, elements around benefits an individual gets in terms of voting because individuals are very unlikely to affect the outcome of the election. So because of that, we have to think about these social benefits. And we don't think vote by mail really changes those social benefits of voting much. What it does is really lower the cost of actually voting. So that's the straightforward answer that I think is most accurate, that just if you think about getting your ballot beforehand, having tremendous freedom with when and where you fill it out, uh, a large number of drop boxes you can uh, drop it off in, that is just considerably simpler and less costly than taking time off of work, potentially standing in line and these sorts of things. And that's, uh, I think, a straightforward theory that seems pretty consistent with what we find. Are there other sort of elements around? So initially, there's been some theorization around uh, things like early voting and even to some extent vote by mail, that if you give people longer amounts of time with their ballot, that actually then campaigns and media and organized groups that are trying to get out the vote don't have this concentrated window around election day to mobilize the way groups traditionally have in in-person elections. But we just don't find evidence consistent with that. We think groups are still able to probably even more effectively say, you know, you have that ballot already sitting there, make sure you fill it out and drop it off or put it in the mailbox. My hunch here is that there is great value to there being consistency in election policies across a state. You know, we see in a lot of states that offer voters the opportunity to to get their ballot by mail and the opportunity to send it back by mail or in a drop box. We do see that there doesn't seem to be as much of a turnout boosting effect. And um, I think the theory that makes the most sense that explains that uh, to me is that the folks who are responsible for mobilizing voters and running these GOTV campaigns, so that's candidates running for office and also grassroots groups and even media organizations who are trying to get out the vote, they now have two, three, four different messages that they're trying to communicate to voters about all the different options they have for, for voting. Whereas in Colorado, there's this unified message, hey, look, if you're a registered eligible voter, you're going to get your ballot by mail. Uh, and then here are the steps you take to, to fill it out and return it. That consistency seems pretty key. So what do you think are the lessons that travel from Colorado to other states? And I think this is always a hard question exactly for the reasons that Charlotte said at the beginning of the episode, which is that the United States doesn't have a single national election. It has 50 state elections kind of at the same time or 50 elections that are managed at the state level at the same time. 
what, I mean, in being a little bit critical, what do you think is a clearer takeaway that every state could adopt from Colorado? But what do you also think is maybe unique or perhaps limited in terms of what the, the policy result or the recommendation would be from your, from your study? So the two most successful states pretty clearly in terms of switching to all-male voting are Colorado and then Washington state as well, um, which a few years before Colorado switched as well. When you say successful, you mean increasing turnout? In increasing turnout, but also in terms of just general satisfaction with the process among voters. So, uh, and among election administrators in those states and uh, sort of a lack of logistical problems that we're sometimes seeing. So, you know, just now there's a story out today about an Atlanta suburb that accidentally hasn't mailed out the the absentee. There's a huge increase in absentee voting. Uh, Georgia didn't move to all-male voting the same way, but a huge increase in absentee requests and that about half of the people uh, who requested these absentee ballots haven't yet gotten them in this uh, democratically leaning, uh, racially diverse suburb of Atlanta. And that, you know, that could be a typical sort of logistical human error and things like that and bureaucratic implementation, um, given the increase of absentee ballot requests. But also when we think about there, again, uh, given the contemporary Republican Party, this is, I think it's okay to say in the year 2020, Republican state governments don't appear very interested in having people vote, <laughs> turn out to vote, especially in, in the cities, in the urban areas and the more racially diverse areas. So the Texas governor, Greg Abbott, just said, there can be a maximum of one mail ballot drop-off location per county. So Houston's Harris County, which has millions upon millions of people, will have the same number of drop-off locations as an extremely low population rural area of the state. All of these seem to be the case where, so as Charlotte mentioned in a recent Vox article and our co-author Adam Bonica, I think I'll paraphrase his phrase where Washington and Colorado, these were policy changes, vote by mail were, was developed the way a surgeon practices surgery and there's there was a sort of rollout period. But then now what is the case in some states is like they're attempting to practice this surgery, but there are political actors in positions of powers that are trying to tackle the surgeon essentially as they try to operate on I don't know how far this analogy travels, but the point about Colorado that Charlotte mentioned is that election administrators really need to want the system to work from county offices up to state administrators um, and the governor themselves. So that is really what we think separates Colorado and Washington from other states that, for example, some of my earlier research was on California's early attempts at mail voting in some small precincts. So in disproportionately low-income rural and Latino precincts in California, they allowed small precincts to switch to all-mail voting. But this was done at a precinct-by-precinct sort of elective basis, and it was not that effective at improving turnout versus Colorado and Washington, where every administrator and essentially every politician from the local through the state level wanted the system to work and believed, appeared to have an ideological commitment to the idea it should be convenient and accessible to vote in American electoral democracy. So Jake, let me let me just kind of push back from one perspective on, on what you just said, which is um, I, you know, I used to be resident of San Diego County, and I voted in San Diego from 2004 to 2012. And I remember when San Diego introduced the the sort of ATM style voting. 
you would go to the polling center, the ATM there would be to record your vote. And, and California has a lot of referenda. And I remember sort of being excited to vote or whatever and turn out. But then once you get to the machine and people are lined up behind you, you have to read through, you know, referenda after referendum. And I got kind of like nervous and self-conscious and just thought, you know, I really need more time. And I'm, you know, I'm getting a PhD in political science. So presumably if this is easy for anyone, it should be easy for me. And then I moved to Washington and Washington is vote by mail. I fill out my ballot at home and I thought, oh, I can actually read the referendum language. I can see what the endorsements are. I can kind of take my time. But I got to be honest, I miss going to a polling station. I miss election day being like an event that everybody's kind of participating in. I miss the cookies and the orange juice you get from the poll workers. I miss seeing other people in my community turning out. I just miss that social aspect of it. Um, even though it's actually much easier to vote by mail, particularly in states with referenda. So what do you think? Yeah, is that I, is that a I reason like, not to have a mail-in voting? So I like your point. So first that, you know, you may be able to take the time to make more informed votes, especially in these more Western ballot initiative states, including Colorado, Washington, and California. At the same time, yes, the hype around election day is very, in a lot of ways, really fun, especially for politics nerds like those of us on this podcast right now. Um, but uh, in Washington State and Colorado, where you have the Dropbox locations, um, you can see students, for example, around uh, UW's campus or in Capitol Hill around uh, Seattle U and things like that. You can see kids essentially dunk in their filled out mail ballots in the envelopes into these secure Dropboxes. And they're so excited. Um, so I actually think there is a bit of fanfare around it still. Let me chime in here too. I think this is a really important question um, and one that we're not talking about enough right now. So a, a project I just uh, wrapped up in partnership with an organization called Vote From Home 2020 surveyed a few thousand swing state Democrats to understand whether they were planning on voting by mail or in person, and if not planning to vote by mail, why not? And uh, what we found is that uh, a plurality of respondents who said that they were not planning on voting by mail, uh, when asked why not, said that they really wanted to exercise their right to vote in person. It was less a concern about mail voting and more of a draw of voting in person. There's something about that social element of voting that I do think matters to people. That being said, I personally don't think the solution is to require people to, to go to vote in person if they want to vote. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, I think it's also problematic to just put, you know, five different voting options on the table for folks because it becomes very hard for the people who mobilize voters to communicate in a really clear, succinct, compelling way to, to people about what about how to go about voting. Even without the dangers of COVID, it's just not feasible for so many busy people who are working or in school or watching their kids to get out to a polling place within a set number of hours. And I think we just need other ways to make voting feel special and to help voters feel like they're part of a broader community. And it's one reason I really like the idea of making voting a national holiday beyond giving people that time to uh, you know, if they choose to wait until election day to fill out their ballot and drop it off in a safe way in a, in a Dropbox or USBS Dropbox. Um, I think it also just creates 
some excitement around elections. People should be holding barbecues and getting their friends together, you know, once, once the pandemic is over, getting their friends together to vote and watch election results. And frankly, celebrate the fact that we have elections and we get to choose our leaders in this country. Uh, so I think we need to uh, take a step back and ask, how do we simultaneously preserve the social benefits of voting while not imposing any undue costs on people and making sure that they can cast their ballot as easily as possible? And Charlotte, I, I realize that Mia asking that question is very rich coming for me because I have solved that problem in my own life by simply observing elections in other countries where they, they all vote on the same day. And so I, I sort of get that joy. I get that dopamine hit of the social, the holiday aspect, the celebration. You know, voting day in a country like Kenya or Ghana or South Africa or Afghanistan is a huge deal. And everybody's doing it and everybody's lined up and, and it's such a celebration. And I think part of my nostalgia is actually probably more nostalgia for sort of witnessing it elsewhere than simply in the United States, to be honest. That's, I mean, this is an important point. So India routinely sees 70% turnout in countries with much less wealth and- Well, in uh, India, it takes like a month to vote, to do the whole election. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I think it takes about a month to do the whole election in India. Gotcha, yeah. but rates of, essentially, my point being, rates of voter turnout are higher across the world. Yeah. And in the US, like this is, a, this is a real crisis of American politics and sort of civic engagement where we need to think one side, we've been talking about convenient voting reforms, reforms that make it less costly and burdensome to vote. And we think those are really crucial, both on the registration side, like same day registration and really automatic voter registration. And then also on the actual how you turn in your ballot, so mail voting being the principal reform in that case. But there are just so many other elements of uh, stimulating civic engagement that we need to focus on to sort of uh, create a real renaissance and rebirth of American democracy. So that's about uh, fostering civic engagement through organization. And this is very difficult in the time of a pandemic, but the decline of civic voluntary organizations in the way scholars like Theta Scotchpole and Marshall Gans have talked about for a long time, sort of uh, voluntary federated associations and clubs, um, also the decline of the labor movement in the U.S. Um, as a key sort of uh, mobilizer of votes, the decline of ACORN, which was uh, received some federal money to essentially register and turn out low-income people of color around the country. These sorts of organizations are really crucial and rebuilding them, I think, is, is key to creating. I think we've actually seen uh, some civic renaissance over recent years with the rise of groups like Indivisible, which had a sort of uh, local social community-based structure to them that started after the 2016 election. Um, but we need that times to some exponential power, the case where, uh, you know, even uh, really bright spots like the Women's March that were sort of record-sending uh, protest movements or the Black Lives Matter movement this year, we need to foster that type of engagement uh, more consistently throughout, you know, not just around presidential elections, but throughout long-term investments in that so then uh, people feel much more connected, like their vote actually counts and they can make their voice heard in American politics. Well, so you guys also have a, a separate research project, although, of course, it's somewhat related on the impact of same day registration on galvanizing youth turnout. And, and we can link to this as well uh, on the website. Do you want to say a little bit about what your finding is there? 
Yeah, is um, actually kind of a parallel finding to what we found in Colorado. We looked at states that had implemented same-day voter registration, uh, which essentially means that a voter can go into their polling place and register to vote and then right afterward cast their ballot. This takes a process that is historically two steps, right? You have to register to vote before some kind of arbitrary registration deadline and then you get to vote uh, on election day or, or during an early voting period and it turns it into a one-step process. And what we found was that same-day registration increases turnout for everybody, but especially for young people. Uh, and Jake was sharing earlier some of the reasons why that might be the case. One of the biggest ones is that young people move quite frequently in this country, much more frequently than other age groups. And it, the American approach to voter registration is that your registration is tied to your address. And so when you move, you have to go to some government online portal or go somewhere in person and update your voter registration to match your new address. That means that uh, young people face a much greater uh, barrier to staying registered over time as they move from, say, their parents' home to where they're going to school to moving for a new job. Uh, and it allows them to just show up on election day and either register for the first time or update uh, their voter registration. Yeah, and young people also wait till the last minute to do everything anyway. So it's good to allow them that uh, wiggle room, I guess. Um, I will I'll also add, you know, this is what my dissertation research is focused on, is the question of why young people in America vote at quite low rates relative to other age groups and why they do so consistently uh, year after year after year. And what I have found uh, in a, a national survey that I conducted this past year is that young people on like any measure of how difficult uh, registering and voting are, report that they report that it's much more difficult for them uh, than seniors end up reporting. So uh, when you ask young people about the information that they need to register and vote, you know, understanding the steps of registration or understanding where their polling place is located, uh, understanding how to learn more about the candidates and the issues on their ballot, young people are much less likely than older age groups to say that they have that information. Uh, when you you ask them if they have the transportation that they need to get to their polling place, they're less likely to say that they do. The list goes on and on. And then when you ask them how easy or difficult voting is for them, young people are statistically significantly more likely than other age groups to say that voting is hard. So I, I think it's an important it's, it's an important thing for us to step back and recognize because a lot of folks who, especially who research politics, but who are pretty well educated, I'm guessing a lot of the folks who are listening to this podcast have probably had a lot of experience with voting and maybe forgotten how when you're young and just getting started with the voting process, it can feel pretty overwhelming. You may not know what all of the steps are. You may not know where your DMV is to go and, and get registered or there are just so many pieces of the process, having to learn where your polling place is and so on. Uh, so the more that we can combine different steps into one, allow people to register to vote online versus having to go somewhere in person, these things that can seem kind of minor when you're already registered and already have a track record of voting, the more we can do that, the easier we make it for the people who are most likely to feel overwhelmed by the process and to lack that basic starting uh, information uh, about how to participate. So, so let me get to two really big objections or questions to have you guys really wrestle with in thinking about election security. 
And if we grant everything from your studies and, and all of the positive benefits, let me kind of propose two potential risks to mail-in voting. And the first is, how can we be ensured the integrity of the vote count with mail-in ballots? Now, I recognize that this has become sort of a politicized issue. Not it has, it, it is now a politicized issue. But for you know listeners who are uninitiated or those who are maybe voting by mail for the first time, is there any evidence of fraud in your study in Colorado or elsewhere? Uh, is it full? Is it foolproof? Are there ways that you could cheat in that system? Charlotte and I have a new op-ed, mostly Charlotte's expertise in the conversation about this sort of allegation from President Trump and. But, I, but, but take it seriously. I mean, it's easy to dismiss I, I, no, it. I, I mean, but but a lot of people do wonder about this, and it's a new issue, right? So people aren't familiar with. Absolutely. It. So no, the the sense is voter fraud is as minimal in mail voting as it is in in person voting, which is infinitesimally small. I don't have the exact number, but audits of ballots uh, in mail ballot elections and in in person elections or hybrids um, have shown essentially no voter fraud and especially not voter fraud levels that could swing an election. Um, and it's a, there are massive penalties to voter fraud. It's, and in terms of mail voting specifically, it's extremely hard to duplicate or make some sort of fake absentee ballot. You have to be a registered voter to get one. Um, which also involves sort of identity verification. And then it's essentially you, you get the mail ballot and you get the outside envelope, which are required to uh, count the count the ballot as legitimate. And all of those are extremely difficult, if not impossible to forge. Uh, just to kind of reiterate uh, what, what Jake was getting at here. There are by our count, at least six ways in which mail-in ballots are protected from voter fraud. So first, only valid voters get their ballot in the mail. They can't, uh, in, in almost all parts of the country, they cannot be forwarded to another address. Uh, folks have to be registered voters. Two, it's really hard to make a fake ballot. This is because the way that ballots are designed varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. They're on really special card stock. They have special page sizes. The color and the thickness of the paper is going to vary from place to they place. They have barcodes they, in Washington. They, yeah, not barcodes on the... Um, on the ballot itself, but on the the return envelope, right. uh, yeah, that are all kind of customized for the voter. And then you have um, different uh, ways that people can mark their choice, right? Some some fill in the bubble, some connect the arrow, some you know darken this box. And then they have different races on them, different uh, people running for office. You might have governor, attorney general race on one ballot, and someone running for some random uh, local political council on another ballot. So you have to. Get get all of that right, then voters have to affirm their identity typically. So that can be signing the ballot that they're returning their, uh, signing the envelope that they're returning their ballot in. It can be having a witness uh, confirm that they are who they say they are. The ballot envelopes are also all customized. This is the fourth way that, that uh, they're protected against fraud. So often you have these unique barcodes identifying each voter on ballot envelopes. Um, the envelopes have special designs themselves. You kind of get my point here. The, the, the fifth thing we point out is that the Postal Service is trained to notice oddities in vote by mail. So if they notice a bunch of, it, well, one person returning a bunch of 
uh, mail-in ballots all at once, for instance. We have uh, evidence that that's been flagged in the past and investigated. And then finally, as Jake mentioned, voter fraud is a serious federal and state crime. You know, if you're going to go to all this work to try to perpetrate one act of voter fraud, you could be punished by up to five years in prison and ten, a $10,000 fine, plus any state penalties. Those are just the federal ones. So it really is just not clear that it would be worth the effort. And so almost all, yeah, and and also there are not actually that many sort of even voter fraud charges and when people get imprisoned and heavily fined for voter fraud, it's often for things like voting in the wrong county, things, things that actually like are unlikely to be this sort of mass scale sort of boogeyman that has been developed in recent months. You don't have to take our word on this. I think it's very telling that Benjamin Ginsburg, who is a prominent Republican lawyer, been on a a vocal advocate of conservative election policies for the last 40 years or so, he came out with an op-ed just a couple weeks ago saying uh, that the headline was, Republicans have insufficient evidence to call elections rigged and fraudulent. And he called out that there have just been hardly any instances of voter fraud. Uh, associated with male voting. So uh, even he, someone who has every interest in the world to find a way for Republicans to be right when they claim that voter fraud is happening, uh, even he had to say, listen, this is just a non-issue. So Charlotte, I just want to be really clear, though, for, for listeners, then what you're saying is the Chinese government could not simply manufacture, say, 100,000 fake ballots, put them in the mail in the state of Washington and send those through. Or if they did, the state of Washington would receive those fake ballots, know that they're fake and reject them in the count. Every election security expert who has commented on this scenario this year has said that is absolutely not going to work. The post office would immediately notice it. Election officials would immediately notice it. There are five million ways, it's an exaggeration, but there are many parts in the voting process uh, where that would uh, raise serious red flags. So yeah, it's just, it's just a non-issue. So I'd like to get to a second objection, which actually I was thinking about um, in anticipation of this conversation, but also it was something that, um, that Vice President Biden actually brought up in Tuesday, but he brought it up on Tuesday in the debate, but in a different way. So one of the objections I could see to mail-in ballots is that we're not actually all then voting in the same election because we're voting at different parts of the campaign. You know, maybe somebody fills in their ballot in early October, maybe somebody fills it in in early November, but at that point, different things could have changed in the world. And so the argument that uh, Vice President Biden made on Tuesday about why he does not believe that Trump should move his Supreme Court nomination through is that people had already started voting. And so that the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg could plausibly shift their thinking about who they want to vote for. But if you've already sent your ballot in, you can't do anything about that. Now with the announcement of COVID, uh, that the president has COVID, that too could shift things. So how do we want to think about the fact that mail-in ballot mail-in ballots mean that we may all be deciding kind of at a different point and then voting in essentially what are different elections or elections at different parts of the campaign cycle. Yeah, I'd say a couple things here. First, this is a question more about allowing voters to vote early than anything else. And setting aside the question of mail voting, the vast majority of states already let people vote early in in one form or another, uh, whether by mail or or in four and five states, we allow for in-person early voting. Second, I would say that really every voting day is a, a little arbitrary. There's no 
great reason why how people uh, how people feel on November 3rd should be uh, what rules the day and not how they're feeling about who should win on November 1st or November 2nd. Obviously, we do need to decide at some point what the window of time is going to be in which people can cast a ballot. But I would argue that you can actually make a pretty strong case for letting people vote over a slightly broader range of time. When all voting is happening on a single day, a candidate could, in theory, take some really big action right before Election Day to swing people's votes. Uh, and there wouldn't be enough time for media to cover that, for people's opinions to kind of have a chance to settle. You can think about the question of whether Trump would announce a, a vaccine or a cure for COVID right before Election Day. With early voting uh, options, those sort of last minute actions, especially by an incumbent who wields enormous policy power, are going to have less of an ability to distort outcomes. So I, I generally uh, lean in favor of at least having a, a few weeks where voters have an option to cast their ballot early. So the very first presidential election I voted in was in 2000. And I remember the pictures of the recount in Florida when they were sort of squinting at the at the punch and punch card ballots and the trying to figure out the hanging chat or not. Is there if there were a question about a mail in ballot that an election administrator has received, are mail in ballots better at not being spoiled or not being rejected in the count than in person voting or are there uh, potential roadblocks that could arise in the adjudication of certain ballots if administrators can't decide if it's a vote for X or Y, and then it, it somehow goes into a legal process for adjudication. Jeffrey Tubin's New Yorker piece a week or two ago goes into all the, the massive amount of litigation over mail ballots and counting mail ballots that's already in the works. And this is really new. What the article taught me in part is that actually candidates and their campaigns didn't really litigate the, uh, these sorts of things in court as campaigns until the 2000 election. But all of that is looking kind of like child's play compared to this cycle. And what I mean by that is there's a, so one key sort of point of legal contention right now is around how generous we should be around matching signatures when counting mail-in ballots. So you typically sign the envelope and then the, uh, the signature is matched to the uh, signature on the voter registration and the ballot counters are pretty good in the established vote by mail states and there's not uh, large percentages of ballots that are rejected due to uh, signatures not matching precisely enough but some of this litigation is attempting to make it stricter in terms of uh, signature matching um, and that actually might limit the amount of ballots that are counted in some states. So uh, the Trump campaign is suing in court to try to make it uh, more difficult to match these signatures, for example. So again, this is all in flux right now, and we've never quite had a coalition that's done so many innovative ways at this point to try to make ballots not count. And uh, also with the new switch to mail-in voting in a lot of places, we saw in a recent New York City election that ballot counting just took a long time with the mail ballots. So all of this sort of remains to be seen whether how much all the states pull it off. But one thing we do see uh, that's effectively done is vote by mail and valid, ballot validation in Washington and Colorado. Great. So let's segue to my very last question and have you each kind of comment on it, which is, you know, in your given your 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 research as well as Charlotte, your experience in election administration, what do both of you see as the single biggest threat to election security in this upcoming election? The biggest threat to having a, a free and functional election in 2020 
honestly, is that one of the two major parties in this country is actively trying to suppress the votes of anyone who think anyone they think will not vote for them. And it's leading to the disintegration of our democracy. And it's an uncomfortable thing to say as an academic, because we are, are taught to try to kind of stay above the partisan fray. But as a researcher of our democratic system, it's deeply, deeply concerning to me to see senior level Republican Party officials up to the, the president himself try to foment a deep distrust in our election system as a tactic of, of suppressing democratic votes. I'd say the, the first order scariest threat to a free and fair election this year, I think, is, is sort of the rise of uh, sort of paramilitary and militia style intimidation, voter intimidation, and potentially even political violence. Um, and you saw in the debate that uh, President Trump didn't necessarily distance himself from that sort of, he called on his supporters to, you know, be vigilant and go to polling places and essentially implied voter intimidation. That's extremely frightening. But the second order, more sort of incompetence-based fiasco that Rick Pat Hayden, I can never quite pronounce his name, the law professor at Irvine, has in his book, Election Meltdown. And oh, ha- his, Hassan, Mark Hassan? Uh, Rick, but... Uh, Rick Hassan, yeah. But this uh, idea is that uh, mail ballots uh, may take longer to count given a for example, signature matching. So a combination of the media wanting to report on an election winner early on and a potential difference in the partisanship and the vote choices of in-person counted more quickly ballots and mail ballots that come in later. So for example, a certain candidate is ahead early on with you know only some mail ballots counted. They call themselves the winner. Media may go with it the way, if you remember Fox News calling 2000 for Bush made a huge difference uh, in the ensuing sort of public opinion about the recount. So uh, it's just really important that both media, political elites, and voters and grassroots groups really think about not really not believing there is a true winner until if there's either a landslide or all of the ballots have been counted. Well, great. Thanks a lot, guys. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, there's a lot, you know, that will uh, unfold, of course, over the next month. Will you guys come back and talk to us uh, either before or after the election to do a little bit of a roundup about uh, what happened? Would love to. Thanks for having us, James. Great. Thanks a lot, Charlotte. Thanks a lot, Jake.